remember those snowy days we had earlier in the year. And I heard that some churches just didn't have meetings on those days. In fact, I hear this was one of those churches. And you missed a sermon or two. So this morning, I'm going to fill in the gap of one of the gaps that you missed. So you were going through Ephesians. And the passage we're going to try and look at this morning is Ephesians chapter 4 and the first 16 verses. Um, Now, if Bradley Stokes is anything like now, I might not do all 16 verses, but um, you probably want some lunch. So, let's just remind you, like the rest of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, this uh, section is cram-packed with stunning truth about God's church. Paul's writing towards the end of a life where he had spent decades starting churches and caring for churches. And now he writes as a prisoner in Rome. And within the next year or two, or maybe even the next few months, he will be taken out of that prison and, to, and executed. So he writes with a passion. He writes with a passion because time is short, but he writes with a passion because he knows the transforming power of the Christian message and then knows the impact it can have on individual lives and whole communities. And he's had the privilege of sharing with those communities how to live for Christ. But soon, the only way he will be able to impact is through his writings, because he will not be able to be present with them. And uh, so this letter is full of insight and wisdom that's been distilled over all those years of ministry. Now we're going to try and get to grips with this passage. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to, I'm going to read a part of it and then comment on it and then read another part and comment on it and make our way through. So Ephesians 4 verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This is a turning point in this letter. It's a, in most of Paul's letters, he does this. He will get to a point having described all that God's done for us in Christ, for those that follow Jesus, having described what he's done, he then starts to turn to what we should work out in our lives. So he moves from describing what God has done to telling us what God desires to be worked out in our life. Or you can put it, he moves from the privileges to our responsibilities. And if you're a grammarian or a linguist, you might want to say you move from the indicative to, in, to the imperatives, which always confuses me. For simple people like me, you move from the done, God has done this, to the do's. This is what we should do. And so up until now, first three chapters of Ephesians, there is only one command, which is to remember. Remember what you once were. Remember what you have now become. Read all three chapters, you get one, remember. But now, you're going to get do, 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 do a lot. And this is the start of that. And one of the great themes of Ephesians is that this broken, fragmented, chaotic world in which we live will one day be mended and brought back into harmony And everything will find its rightful place under the Lordship of Christ. 
So in chapter 1, Paul, in verse 9, says, God has made known to us, his church, the mystery of his will. What is the God up to in history? Well, Paul carries on in verse 10 to say, his plan, his will, is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Or to put it another way, to bring into harmony everything that is now out of tune within the individual, within community, but more than just that, to the whole of the created order. One day, when the Lord returns, everything will be what God originally intended it to be when he started creation. It will reach its climax and fulfillment in Christ. That's what Christ has achieved. That's what's coming. In chapter 2, Paul talks about how that's applied to us as individuals. He talks about that our broken relationship with God has now been mended. We were dead spiritually and now we're alive in Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places spiritually. And then he says it's not only that you and God are okay, but God has brought people together. In the ancient world, there was no division as great as the division between Jew and Gentile. And in this letter, Paul particularly focuses on that, and he says, in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. And now Jew and Gentile can get on, on equal footing. And elsewhere, he explains it, that means male and female, slave and free, anything that has divided communities can be put together for those that are in Christ. And now that's what God has done. Now he wants to talk about what we need to do to work it that out. So he goes on. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. That's what Paul is commanding us to do. In, in fact, the rest of the letter could be summarized under that heading. If you do all the rest of the letter, then this should be achieved. This is what we're called to do. And how do you do that? How do you make every effort to keep this unity? Well, you're humble and gentle and patient. And translating it another way, you put up with one another which is not easy. You see, the unity that we should display in the church is of, is of an order that you couldn't find anywhere else. But it's not automatic. It's not always easy. People not, are not always as nice as me. Well, that's what I think. Don't you find some people awkward? And it's always their fault. The truth is we're all a bit broken. We're all a bit fractured. And so as we come close to each other, it's so easy for us to pierce each other because of our oddities and our differences and our brokenness. But in Christ, the one who is healing us, even in the midst of our brokenness, he can make us one, male and female, black and white, young and old, rich and poor. It is possible for us in a way it is not possible for anyone else on planet Earth. For we are in Christ, 
and his spirit is in us which means we must set very high standards for ourselves. And that means becoming very low in our own estimation. Be completely humble and patient. And then Paul just underlines all he said in the first three chapters, all that unites us, all that's true. And he says seven things. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's all ours. All ours. Because we are in him. With such a foundation, with such amazing things tying us together, now we can do this. We can make a difference. We can be a community that stands out for God. And then what Paul often does when he talks about the theme of unity, and it is often in his letters or in the background of what he says, he talks about unity and then he talks about diversity. And that's what he's going to go on to do now. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. We all receive grace. We get the grace of acceptance, but we get grace in terms of gifts. And they differ. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And here, Paul is picking up a picture that's found in a psalm. He's, he's almost quoting it word perfect it just changes it slightly at the end. I think it's Psalm 68, and the picture is of a conquering commander with his army coming home, having got the victory. Actually, in Paul's day, this would be the sort of thing that could happen in Rome. So Julius Caesar or Pompey, two of the great generals in Rome, when they had conquered new territories or put down rebellious tribes they might be granted a triumph, which was the only occasion a general could march into Rome with his troops. And they would march in to great applause, and behind them would come all the treasures, all the booty that they had got from their victories. And at the end, there would be the leaders of those who had been defeated, in change, the captives, and they would process right into the heart of Rome. That's the picture. Christ, by his death on the cross, not only disarmed the principalities and powers, but he defeated them. And then he went to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the victor, victorious. He took many captives. And then in the psalm, it says that the victor receives gifts. And what Paul does he tweaks it a little bit and sort of rolls the camera on. What happens next? Well, what would happen, of course, is that the commander has all this treasure. It's all presented. It's like laid at his feet. But then he would distribute it to his followers. He would give gifts to people. And that's the picture that Paul says now. Christ is victorious. He has won much treasure. Now he gives gifts. To his people and he gives different gifts 
to different people. And Paul, in a variety of places, talks about all sorts of gifts. Here, he talks about particularly leadership gifts or leadership ministries. And before we just touch on them, you know that little thing in brackets about ascending and descending? Let me just tell you, in case you're pondering, the descending there is not what happened after he died. The descending is what happened when he came to earth and was born as a baby. So he descended from heaven and then ascended to heaven. He descended and became frail and fragile and human and then ascended victorious. You can research that more if you wanted it, but just in case that was in your mind, I'm going to move on. So here's the gift that that the scripture says Christ gives, that he gives to the church, wrapped up in people. So Christ himself gave apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some pastor teachers. And I just want to paint in sort of broad brushstrokes what those gifts look like. You can get books that try to define these in a definite, exact definition. And how do you know the difference between the two? And we could discuss how they are recognized that anyone's got these gifts and how you will point them. And you'll be relieved that we're not going to go there particularly. We just want to acknowledge that the scripture says God gives these gifts to the church and think about uh, why they're important. I'm going to do them in reverse order because that helps. And the uh, first is pastor teachers. Well, there's a little debate here because it could be two different gifts, pastors and teachers. But as the scholars have worked on it, they think it, the most probable meaning is one gift that has two aspects, pastor teachers. And uh, pastors mean shepherds, so shepherds look after the sheep, they guard the sheep, they keep them together, and they feed the sheep. So they pastor and they feed, they teach. That's probably Paul's meaning here. And uh, when I look at this list of gifts, this is the one I associate with. And that, this is the one that people, I think, see in me. I think I probably do my best pastoring through my teaching. And you might know some pastors who do their best teaching through their pastoring. You can have different emphasis in the same sort of gifting. But what is a pastor teacher? Well, I'll tell you what they do. Not only in my own experience, but in what I've observed in others. They're good at helping people to grow together, they keep the flock together, and to grow deeper. But if the church only receives this gift, and mo most churches really need this gift expressed locally, if that you grow together and you grow deeper, but you can grow slowly, and you can grow flabby, would be, be my experience. Grow together and you grow deeper, but you can grow flabby because pastors are not always the ones to put urgency into the situation or drive. And um, so you can be happy about not going as fast as God might want you to go. Now, that might be just me, but I think it's true of many pastors, teachers, and that's why you need other gifts. Now, every denomination I know, every stream of churches I know recognizes this gift of leadership. And virtually every church will have someone, at least someone like this, and maybe more. 
And you might call them a minister or a priest or a pastor or just a leader, but this gift will be there. Evangelists, most people recognize that gift exists. Uh, People who are gifted at sharing about Jesus to those who don't know him or follow him yet. They can make it understandable to someone who's not full of the lingo, who hasn't been steeped in the Bible. They can make it make sense and overcome their, help them overcome their problems and answer their questions. And the particular thing they do is they help people over the line of commitment. They help people get to the point of decision, not just learning and agreeing, but giving the whole of their lives to the Christ who lives and reigns in heaven, the Christ we find in the Bible. They're particularly good at that. My own experience is I can help people towards that point of faith and I can help people after that point of faith, but that critical moment is not the place that I'm most used. I think that's what pastor teachers do. In general, that's, they draw people and they build people, and, but that moment... An evangelist is particularly effective at. Make sense? Now, usually every church has a pastor teacher. Not every church has an evangelist. Because these gifts are not always found in one local church. And I think by design God does that. You know why we don't all have the gifts? Because I would be obnoxious if I had all the gifts. And so would you. Because we would be independent and we would be proud. But he gives us a gift so that we might bless others and he makes us dependent on others so that we might grow. And just think about a church that had it all. How horrible would they be? I mean, just just think about the churches who think they've got it all. They're not very nice. But if they had it all. And so churches need other gifts. These gifts are for the church, not just for this church. Yeah? So, pastors and teachers and evangelists, we're probably okay with that. Most Christians are okay with that. Just to note, we, we all know, don't we, that if you're a Christian, you're supposed to share your faith with others. Just because there are people particularly gifted at evangelism, it's not like, well, I don't have to do any of that. You know, I don't have to tell my friends or my neighbors. I just, you know, that's, that's somebody else's job. Now, we all do that, but some people are particularly gifted. And we thank God for them, but we have a responsibility. And actually, we're all responsible to care for one another. So in a way, we're all little pastors. And we all have the ability to read from God's Word and share that with somebody. We all teach. But some people are particularly gifted at it. Some people are particularly gifted as evangelists. And that helps us when we come to the next two. Because not every church has always thought that the gift of prophets still around today. And there's good reasons for that. Because... It feels like top trumps, doesn't it? I can say, well, the Bible, I think the Bible says, and you go, well, I don't think it says that. We can debate that. But if someone comes and says, James, I'm the prophet of the Lord. Do this. That, if, well, what, 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 ah, it's difficult to negotiate with that, isn't it? But actually, in the New Testament, it makes clear no prophet today is like an Old Testament prophet. And it says we should weigh prophecy. That's right. So 
We prophesy in part, Paul says. So in any prophetic word, there's likely to be a bit of us and a bit of God. And we weigh it just like, what's the, what's the solid bit here? And there's all, all sorts of things we could say about weighing and how you do it, but just, that just tells you something about prophecy today. And also, if you've got, you're particularly gifted in prophecy, you know you have to be careful how you say it because it can come with such weight that people forget they need to weigh it and feel, feel like under pressure. And the prophetic's not supposed to burden us. It's supposed to lift burdens. It's supposed to give us direction and help. But whether people recognize prophecy or not, I think everyone who walks with God knows prophecy a bit for themselves. Have you ever found that your best ideas are not your ideas? You know, you're thinking about something, you're praying about a situation, you've thought around it, you've discussed it, and you're not sure what to do, and then something drops into your head. And it's not the conclusion of an argument, but it's just like, oh, oh, now I know. Or you see a situation and you're praying, and then you think, now I know. Sometimes you even know, I know what's going to happen next, but I don't know how I work that out. That's just, that's the sort of level that everyone can prophesy at. We might not call it that, but it's like God prophetically, because prophecy in the Mick Taylor definition is the gift of seeing things the way God sees things. The past, sometimes we reflect on the past, or the present, or the future. God helps us to see it. And it's the ability to hear what he's saying about a particular situation. So we see it and we hear it. And all of us, I think, can know that. Because in the Old Testament, it was just a few prophets. But the prophets said the day would come when God would pour out his spirit on all his people. And they would see dream, dream dreams and see visions and they will prophesy. Young and old, men and women, like anybody, any of the child of God will at times see things in the way the Father sees them and hear what he says about them. But some people, God will choose out of his grace and mercy to use in a particular way, and in this particular way. They're the prophets. And then we come to apostles. If we get worried about prof prophets today, then you can get even more worried about apostles because they seem even like even top, top, top drums, don't they? And one of them is because, one of the reasons is clearly because in the New Testament there were some apostles which like are above everything. You get a Paul or a Peter or a John. These were of a, a no one who says that apostles exist today says there's any apostles or should say there were any apostles like that. People that wrote the Bible, people who could say, if you're spiritual, you'll agree with me, and if you don't agree with me, guess what? You're not spiritual. That's, that's what Paul says in one of his letters. He's just like, and that's not being arrogant. He just knows the authority, unique authority that that level of apostle had in New Testament times. The whole church throughout the ages is built on the foundations of what they taught. There's no apostle like that today. But there, in the New Testament, there were other apostles, like Barnabas and Silas and Apollos that sometimes are bundled in with the apostles and others. 
because the word apostle is like flexible. So it can just mean someone who is sent. It usually comes with a sense of being sent with authority. Like you can be an ambassador. You're sent to a country and then you speak on behalf and with the authority of the government. So there were different levels of apostle even in the New Testament. And sometimes when people write about it today, they talk about apostles with a big A and apostles with a little A as a way of marking out the different levels of authority. But all levels of, of apostleship have some things in common. There's a sort of shape to them. And I was trying to come up with a clever little phrase to explain that. So I came up with initiation and preservation, and then I got stuck on the third. So initiation, preservation, and extenuation. No, that, that, that word doesn't work. But let, let me tell you what I think is a pattern of Scripture. Apostles initiate things, often involved in church planting and new initiatives and pressing outwards. They initiate, and uh, when they start, they lay, Paul says, I'm a, like a master workman. I build a foundation, a foundation of truth. And um, so they start things. They establish things. And then they preserve things. So Paul writes his letters and he visits churches and uh, preserves the truth so that we can easily go off track, can't we? We can get tossed about with every wind of doctrine. Apostles like, no, no, this is it. And sometimes apostles would go to churches they hadn't founded and uh, ever had subsidence? You know, someone comes and goes, oh, that crack is not just a crack, that's subsidence. Your foundations are weak. And I don't know what we call them in, in building terms. You get special people to come and sort the foundations out. Well, apostles are like that. They can come into a situation and go, this is a bit wonky because the foundations have not been put in right. They're not strong enough. And apostles can put that in in a way that another gift uh, can't. And apostles are always thinking bigger and wider than a pastor will ever stay with. See, because pastors are like this. Come, come, come. Let's be together. We're all happy. We're okay. Let me feed you. That's great. And then an apostle is like, this is great, but there's loads more. There's other nations. There's other people. There's other things. L lift your head. Get wider. Is that right? So commission is an apostolic movement because we want to see thousands of lives transformed in hundreds of churches in tens of nations. So this last week, some of us were uh, leaders' prayer time for commission. And uh, we're working, definitely working to five nations already, but we've got growing links with Serbia and the Philippines, and there's a new church starting in, well, linked to us in the States, and other people. And there are ch nations where they haven't got churches that we want to plant churches. The person that's going to press that more than anybody else in our context will be Guy Miller. Because he's an apostle. Like, come on, great. Great what's happening in Bristol. But have you got a world vision? If you haven't got a world vision, you're a deficient church. Now, I know you do. But that's what apostles do. They bring it. Now, I'm a pastor teacher. And I rejoice whenever someone I know comes to Christ. And I'd like to be used in that more, but I know I'm not more as effective in that as an evangelist would be. And 
I have prophetic moments, but that's not normally the way God uses me. And I know without the prophetic, I can lack, you know, I can go blind, not see things. And without the apostolic, I might get too closed in and too slow. You need all of these. Sometimes I think pastor teachers are like GPs. You know, you go to the doctor. Some things, they know what's wrong. They take your temperature, they ask you about, oh yeah, I can do the prescription. I know what that is, take it. Sometimes they go, I know what it is, but I can't sort it. And sometimes they go, I haven't got a clue what it is, but there's something not right here. Well, a prophet can come and go, I can see what's wrong. In a church or in an individual sometimes. And an apostle can sort out like things that we can't sort out. I don't know quite how that works, but I do know it's true. So in churches that I've led in the past, I could see some issues and I could teach into them. And people go, yeah, that's fine. And it wouldn't change. And then you get someone with an apostolic ministry and they come and in a day, in a weekend, they can shift something. Why? Because they're better than anybody else? No, because God has decided in his grace to use them in that way. And that's how he does it. So we don't become horrible because we've got all the gifts. But we become dependent. So that's the fourfold or fivefold gifts. And... um, God is always raising, I believe, continuing to raise up these gifts. They're not just for yesteryear, it's not just for this generation, but it's for the next generation. So even in this room, there might be embryonic stirrings. Let me tell you this, don't put the label on yourself. Don't put the, I didn't know I was a teacher until people kept on asking me to teach. And I thought, oh, I quite, I always knew I liked it, but I didn't know that was the way God might use me until I got the opportunities again and again. I thought, I think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, you might have another opinion after this morning, but that's... And why does he give these different gifts of leadership? Well, this is what he writes. To equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity. See? He's gone unity, diversity of leadership. Why does that, why do we have that diversity? go back into unity unity brings doesn't mean uniformity doesn't mean we're all the same but diversity doesn't mean divergence or disunity or conflict it brings greater unity greater richness until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the son of god and become mature leadership is about bringing people in unity and to maturity attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will be no longer infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I want to give you a picture and then I'll give you some sort of exhortations, okay? Right, here's the picture. Do you know building, sometimes on big building sites, they build like a wall around it of wooden 
it's like a wooden fence, so you can't see the site. But usually on those big building sites, there will be one part where they cut a hole, like a window, into the site. And next to the window, often they will have a picture, and they show you the picture of what the building will be. And then you look through, and it doesn't look like anything like that, because they're building it. But you can see something's happening. And they're saying, that is going to be produced through that. The Bible paints this picture that Christ will unite all things. He will put everything right at the end. But that could just be fanciful, wishful thinking. Where's the evidence for that? The evidence for that is here. The evidence is amongst God's people that already you can see that uniting work of taking the broken and making it whole in the community of the church. That's why for Paul the unity of the church is such an important thing because without it, people can go, I don't believe it, it just seems wishful thinking. No, 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 look at the church. Look at what he does with us. He wants to do miraculous things in terms of our relationships and that will not only please him but it will in part convince the world that this is not make-believe. This is the hope of the world. The God who made us can remake us and we are that window. The Bible paints the picture and we are the window. We are being built into one people in Christ and a family that stretches throughout all the world to the glory of God. Here's the exhortations. If you have an embryonic sense that one of these styles of leadership God is, is giving you, then you should pursue it. Start in prayer. Start reading the biblical stories of great leaders and their, their qualities. Share it with one of the leaders here. You might come and say, I'm, this might sound crazy. When I first shared with my Baptist church that I wanted to go to be a pastor, actually I wasn't in the room, it was shared in a church meeting. One of my friends said, you could have heard a pin drop. And in the silence, someone said, Mick Taylor. Because <laughs> often God chooses people like a David, that the, one you would never think of. You don't even bother about him. I've got seven other sons. And it, you might think it's crazy, and, and other people might raise an eyebrow, but share it with your leaders. And they can guide you and help you and test it with you. And um, if you get, get, if they agree, you could come on something like Foundations, quick advert. And if it's developed even more in your pastor-teacher type, then come on Advanced. And if you just want to explore it and you don't know, go on Impact. But if you've got that even in embryo, nurture the dream and God will guide you and ask your leaders to help you. If you're a leader, your job is to equip the church and to build the church in unity. Your and your focus is to equip the church to minister, which is not to fill every rotor so the church runs smoothly, although that's really important and has to happen. But they might minister in their workplaces and in their neighborhoods. They might be Jesus to their next-door neighbors and the people they meet in the street. The equipping work of the leadership is to equip people to live life in the ordinary, in the Monday to Friday, 
to the glory of God in a way that points to who Jesus is. And that's our, that's our job. And it's to spot leaders, and it is to nurture leaders. And um, I say this as a pastor who loves to teach. That means if you've got someone with embryonic pastoral teaching gifts, you have to give them space, and sometimes you have to give up your place to allow them to do that. It's the sacrifice of leadership to fulfill your job. And if you're a leader or a group of leaders, you must demonstrate to the church the beauty of diversity and unity. You must be the model to this community in ever richer, deeper fellowship. For if it's a good team, you are very diverse. And you, it's the miracle of God's grace that you can take all your diversity and make it wonderful and rich and rewarding. And finally, if you think, I haven't got a shred of leadership in me, well, one, I would doubt, but secondly, the job, if you're not in the leadership position, is to be the best follower you can be, to pray for leaders, to support leaders, to make their job a joy and not a labor, that this community might shine for Jesus in a way the world cannot expect. Paul says this in uh, chapter 3 and verse uh, 10, if I can find the verse. Um, here it goes. This is in the message version. Chapter 3 and verse 10. Through followers of Jesus like yourselves, gathered in ch churches, this extraordinary plan of God to bring things all united in Christ, this extraordinary plan of God is becoming known and talked about even among the angels. You are supposed to be the living demonstration about what God is doing and will achieve finally when the sun returns. Let's give the angels something to talk about. Amen.